Shabbat Shalom. So we are coming into the week of Passover, and it's going to be a super busy week. So we have um, Passover and Nisan the 14th, and then Nisan the 15th, uh, Unleavened Bread, and then First Fruits that following day, and then also a Seventh-day celebration. So a number of services are taking place, pretty busy. So if you want to track that and make sure that you're kind of uh, involved in all that, you can go to our website. And under the tab, Get Involved, it says, I think, 2022 Spring Festivals. Click on that. has all the dates, all the happenings. In addition to that, it also has resources for Passover, how to do a Seder. Why do we take out unleavened bread from our homes on the 15th, right? Um, What does that mean? Why do we do that? All these different practices. We have recipes for how to cook the lamb because it can be a little gamey if you're doing lamb. So we just got a lot of resources for you and your families uh, to, to join in and do those things that we do during this week. And then if you don't have a Seder that you're going to, you can do a home Seder. So just uh, go to that website. We have a Haggadah there too. Uh, videos, how to do a home Seder with the Haggadah. And uh, you can get your game on and start this year. If you've never done one, you can do that this year. Okay. So my sermon today is part two of my Passover series, and this is called The Killing of Jesus. You know, I really wanted to put the murder of Jesus because that's what it is. He was murdered, right? So, uh, but when we think of the lambs, we think of the lambs being slaughtered, they're killed, all right? So Jesus being the Passover lamb of God, well, this teaching is about the killing of the Passover lamb of God, the killing of Jesus, the Holy Week of Passover, it's actually an octave. It's eight days when, when you go and do the timeline. But we call it the Week of Passover. So the Holy Week of Passover memorializes forever the sacrificial death of Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God, and also a few other things. We'll get down to that in a moment. So important was this death that it became central to Messianic Judaism and then later in Christianity as seen in the Passover Seder and the Catholic Eucharist and Protestant communion. This is central, both in Messianic Judaism and in Christianity. In the words of the Jewish Apostle Paul, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The proclamation, which is central, to our faith, is the death of Yeshua, the death of Jesus. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His death, rather than the resurrection, was to be the emphasis for all believers in every place and every generation. So if you're following along, right, you're hearing a lot about Easter. 
It seems like the whole message, the whole theme of this season is Easter. You find all these churches throughout the world that are celebrating Easter with all the different ways that, uh, that you know, Easter is celebrated today. Uh, that's the big emphasis. But don't you find it interesting that Paul says, no, it's his death that we're to memorialize, not his resurrection. It's the death, not the rising. Is the rising important? Of course it is. The resurrection is so important but it pales in significance to the central emphasis of the gospel, the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let me jump into uh, the universal law in creation. And then there's a number of universal laws, of course, uh, both in the physical cosmos and the uh, spiritual cosmos, if you will. Here's one of those universal laws in creation that relates to the Passover. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2 as the law of sin and death. There is a law in the universe like gravity. It's called the law of sin and death. If you, if you sin, you will die. Romans 6.23, the payment for sin is death. If you sin, you get to die. What's the payment for our sins? What's the payment that we owe? Yeah, we owe a debt. Sin is like a debt that we owe. So we owe this debt, this payment that we have to pay for our sins. And that payment is our very lives. We see this in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, the very beginning of our story, right? We see this principle of sin and death at work. Genesis chapter 2, 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, did they die in the day that they ate? That's complicated, isn't it? You got to give a definition of death to really understand what's going on there, because obviously they went on living for quite some time. I think Adam lived to the ripe old age of a thousand plus, or what are you looking at? I thought maybe I had this, the stats up on the board behind me, man. Okay, faking me out. Ushers? No. So, so you know, obviously they go on living. But yet, they didn't. They died spiritually. In the day that they ate it, they were alienated from God. Automatically isolated, alienated from the living God. That's death. They were alive but dead. They were the living dead. Spiritual death came first. And then later, they physically died as well. Another trauma to go through. Spiritual death first. And then physical death later. I think of our mortality more than ever. When you're young, you think you're going to live forever. The older you get, you start to visit that. I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, I, I see classmates, you know, from years gone by. I haven't seen them for whatever. I'm thinking, man, you look so old. I remember I was at this uh, gathering and Hadn't seen this uh, gal for probably 45 years. She saw me. She walked in and she goes, 
You're so old. Man, I'll tell you, it took every bit of the grace of God in me not to take out my iPhone, put it on photo, and hit the reverse screen, and then show her herself. She looked every bit as old as I do. I, you know, but you never think of yourself. You, know, you just think of yourself as eternally young. So, yeah, I think about that more and more. I've done some funerals, uh, you know, over the decades, and we typically use both a Judaic um, resource for that and also the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and here's the prayer that we pray out of the Book of Common Prayer. It's, it's during the internment part of the service. You're all familiar with it. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, that's the payment. Death. It ends in physical death. Not just spiritual, but the whole being dies. So what's the remedy for sin? The remedy is the gift of God. And what is that gift? His son. He gave us his son as a gift to pay for the sin that we all owe. It will reverse the curse. Due to sin, we died spiritually first, then later physically. In Messiah, that's reversed. In Messiah, we come to life first spiritually. Right? We get born again. Our spirit becomes alive. We become a new creation spiritually first and then later physically too in the resurrection where we, we receive glorified bodies. We, we get this makeover, I'll have hair again, right? And we got like this immortalized, you know, indestructible, limitless body. It can do anything and everything. What a day that's going to be. But it starts first spiritually come to life and then later physically just like we died first spiritually and then later died physically so he is the answer it's the love of god for us that he sent his son giving him as a gift to us for our salvation the week of passover is what this is all about it's the week of passover that reveals these transcendent transformational ideas so let's start with some Good news and bad news. The bad news first. Let's do the bad news first, right? That's, I, anyone that's ever told me good news, bad news, I always tell them, tell me the bad news first. I want to end on a good note. So, bad news first. All have sinned and owe the debt of their very lives. Everyone has sinned without exception. If you're not in Messiah, you're condemned to death. You will pay that debt you will suffer and you will pay the debt that you owe. There's no exceptions to that. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. Now, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man, or I'm sorry, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, Romans 6.23, the payment of sin is death. Everyone has sinned, everyone's going to pay. God is just. He's a judge. So he's not just loving, he's also a God of truth and a God of justice. So sin will be dealt with in human flesh. As a sinner, what is your payment? 
your very life, your very life. That's the bad news. Good news is this, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Well, what, how does that work? What, what does it mean that if I believe in Jesus, somehow my payment's paid? How, I mean, Paul does, or, or um, the writer here of the gospel, John, does not explain how that works. He just states the fact that in Messiah, we will live forever. So let's break this down and get into the mechanics of how this works, right? Because certainly God isn't just ignoring and neglecting his own law, his own system of just, justice, right? He's not trampling on his own just laws, right? I mean, the payment of sin is death. Is he simply going to dismiss or remove the law in order to bring about justice? Is that what he does? Does he do away with the law so that we can all be what? Just? That doesn't bring about justice. If I had a son and I don't. But if I had a son who was a serial, serial killer, right? And I don't have a son. And if I did, he wouldn't be a serial killer. Okay, but... If I had a son and he was a serial killer, do you think that if I, and I had the power to change the law, do you think that the solution to that is, I'm going to do away with my own law. Thou shall not murder. I'll just do away with that. Now it's not against the law to murder. Now I can accept my son and he can be what? Right before me and live forever. That is not justice. That does not bring about righteousness. God is not removing his law in Jesus so that we can be saved. No. Payment must be made in order to satisfy and secure justice and righteousness in his creation. He's got to satisfy justice. He does this through an ancient provision that he gave us through Moses, the sacrificial system. It's called substitutionary atonement. This is where he allows us to give a life, a living soul in our place to make payment for the sin that we owe. Substitutionary atonement. The animal dies on our behalf as a payment for our sin. Now, when he made Adam <clears throat> from the dust of the earth, and he blew into his nostrils, it says that he became what? A living soul. Yeah, neshama, a or nephesh, a living soul. You know, when he created the animals and breathed into them his spirit, you know what it says? They became also nephesh, living souls. Your animals have souls. That shocked me when I first learned about that. Yeah, they have mind, will, and emotions. They have more than instinct. They have a mind, will, and emotions. You can tell when your dog is happy or when your dog is sad. Angry and upset or depressed. Why? Because they have this ability through mind, will, and emotions to express that, their living souls, to experience, express, and relate to you as a living soul. 
Man, I'll tell you what, you guys know it. If you, how many people have pets? Yeah, do you not bond and love your animal? Do your animal not love you? That's only possible because it's two living souls. Now, I'm not saying there's an equality between animal life and human life. I am saying that the scriptures are very clear. They're both nefesh. They're both living souls. And part of the reason that God did that is that he knew and anticipated sin and how to deal with it. So Leviticus chapter 17, 11 says this, for the life, nefesh, for the life that can be translated soul, for the life, nefesh, of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Nefesh, that word again. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So by the first century, this is what that would look like. Depending on your sins, you would take an animal, typically a lamb. We'll say a lamb because you could take turtle dove. There's a number of animals you could take, but let's say you took a lamb uh, to the temple to sacrifice, to make atonement for your sins. You take your lamb, that living soul, to the temple, and the priest would come out and meet you at a certain location. And then you would take the animal and give it to the priest who would turn the animal towards you. And you would go through a ritual in this uh, uh, arrangement with liturgy and prayers, and you would lay your hands on that lamb's head because the laying on of hands is an act of transference. You transfer when you lay hands on something. Okay? I think it was two Torah portions ago, maybe one. If you touched that which was holy, you became holy. If you touch that which is unclean, you become unclean. Transference. So you laid your hands on the animal because you're transferring your sin to the lamb. So you laid your hands on your lamb and you confessed your sin and you transferred it to the animal. The sin enters into the soul of the animal that you laid your hands on. And then you're handed basically a sharp instrument. The priest holds the head up. You take and you cut the lamb's throat. And the other priest would catch the blood in a silver basin bowl to take in and throw it on the altar so that your sins could be forgiven. How? Through the death of a living soul because it requires a life. The payment of of sin is a life. God says, I love you so much. I don't want you to die. So I'm going to allow you to give another life in place of your life so you can go on living grace upon grace in the law of Moses. The sacrificial system is a place of grace, not for the animal, but for you and me. That's how that would work. That provided an atonement for your sin. Now, The blood of that lamb is mortal blood. It has a shelf life. It can only cover temporarily. But that animal, all the animals, the sacrificial system, they were types and shadows that pointed pointed us forward to the ultimate sacrifice, right? The lamb of God, right? In his veins coursed eternal life. His life was eternal. 
that means that if his life's poured out for us, our atonement is eternal. Our salvation is never-ending. We have a forever life because of the forever blood of the Lamb shed for us. So those are the connecting points that teach us how God is going to actually satisfy justice and bring about our salvation at the same time. So the whole entire sacrificial system is based on the concept and procedure of substitutionary atonement. That some other life could be the payment for our life. Think of the daily sacrifice. In Hebrew, it's called the tamid. And we translate that regular sacrifice. It's regular because it happens every day, right? It happened twice daily, in fact. In Numbers 28, you can read about that. But they were commanded to sacrifice one uh, in the morning and the other one in the late afternoon. And what are they commanded to sacrifice, by the way? Lambs. Lambs. That becomes, that, that becomes the most often sacrificed animal in the Tanakh. The lamb. One in the morning, one in the late afternoon, every day. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Millennia later, it continues. That's a whole lot of lambs. And what is that cementing in the hearts of every Israelite? This whole idea of substitutionary atonement through the blood of the lamb. It's the very theme of Passover, in fact. Yeah. So when, um, when Yochanan, the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist, right? When he sees Yeshua for the first time, he points, he's with his disciples, and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Being a prophet, he was already connecting the dots. That the Passover lamb is going to find its fulfillment in the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, who will die like they died, but provide for us in eternal salvation. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the long-awaited Passover Lamb of God, the one that Abraham prophesied about as well. Abraham's going to sacrifice his own son. It's another substitutionary blood atonement story. And his son's saying, Dad, hey, we got the fire, we got the wood, you know, but where's the lamb? And he tells his son, son, God himself will provide the lamb. That's the whole idea of the lamb of God, that God has a lamb. God's going to provide it. And he did not provide it that day. It was a ram, not a lamb. Because the lamb of God would have to wait many, many centuries before showing up at the right time to die for us, to make an atonement for our sins. So God gave us his son for our salvation. John, 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a payment. Catch that? To be the payment for our sins. What a wise judge. He's going to satisfy justice, deal with sin, and save us all at the same time. And he does that through his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Did you see the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion? Remember that? You know, one of the chief criticisms that was given to Mel was it was just overdone. Way too much blood. There wouldn't have been that much blood. You know, it was just, it was, it was over the top. And I, I think, you know, there might be a case to be made by that. And, you know, Hollywood tends to sens- sensationalize everything, you know. I mean, even the writers do that. It's got, called hyperbole, where you exaggerate your point to give it emphasis, you know. So I don't know if that's wrong or right, you know. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, the point I want to make, though, is this. Theologically, Jesus, the Lamb of God who knew no sin, becomes sin. He didn't just take it on his shoulders. He didn't carry the weight of the sin of the world. He didn't just embrace our sins and take them to the cross. It says he became sin. He became sin. So what that speaks of is that sin, the sin of the world filled him up. And not only did the sin of the world, it represented the evil of the world. Some theologians point out that he was probably demonized at that point on the cross. Having that evil within him gave access for demons to torment him in that agony. So that on the cross, he certainly becomes a serpent, transforms from a lamb to a serpent on the cross. Because it's the serpent who is the origin of sin. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? I think Mel Gibson actually did a great job in what he was depicting that Jesus, Yeshua, went through. 1 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore we are an ambassador of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. We're begging you. The apostles, they're saying, we're begging you. This, this, this is your chance. This is the payment of your sin. What are you waiting for? Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Invite him into your heart. Get baptized in him. This is your salvation. We're begging, pleading, please. If you have any idea of what awaits the soul who has rejected the gift of God for their salvation, they would in an instant turn to Jesus. Most people just don't know what's coming or they don't believe anything's coming. They don't think there's any judgment. They don't think there's a God who judges. There's justice in our cosmos. Let me tell you, there is. There is. And the payment, it's more than death. It is the torturous agony of suffering and pain as that sin is punished before it is executed. Yeah, so you know what? Let's get right with God. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Embrace him as your Passover lamb. You know, last week we led people in a prayer to receive Jesus. You know, I do that every once in a while. You know, if you've prayed that prayer, you know, let us know. Let us know. If you've given your life to Christ, that's awesome. We have a mikvah tank, a, a baptism tank. Let's get you baptized and walking in faith from this point on. This is so important. This is what Passover is all about. Mark 16, 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. We were talking in the Torah portion this morning. And we were pointing out that one of the ways that a leper is cleansed, and the beauty of this is uh, those are all types and shadows. If you had leprosy, you died, even though you kept on living. What do you mean? Yeah. Say goodbye to your family, your community, 
you lived outside the city with other lepers, the sick taking care of the sick. If you did happen to come in contact with anyone else, you had to take your cloth over your face and yell, unclean, unclean, to keep people away from you. You were the living dead. You were walking around alive, but dead, isolated from everyone, from community, from life. That's a picture of sin. That's where we're at in relation with God. Isolated and and like living dead people, alienated from God. And one of the cleansing elements that comes with leprosy and one of the things they do in this whole cleansing process happens to be the two uh, doves, I think it is, turtle doves, uh, where one of the birds is killed. And then its blood is taken and poured out on the live bird. They take the live bird and they dip the live bird in the blood mixed with water, mixed with water. They dip that other bird in that and then they take and they free the bird. Yeah. One bird dies, the other one gets to live. After being immersed in the blood of the sacrificial dove. Another picture, another picture that we, identifying with the blood of Yeshua on the cross, baptized in his blood, are now free to live and live forever. It's a powerful, powerful depiction. You know, sometimes we read the Torah and it thinks, oh, it's so boring, you know? No, actually it's not. If you understand the spiritual realities that it's trying to communicate, it comes to life. It's beautiful. Let's talk about Jesus in the last Passover. In order to understand the Passover in the apostolic scriptures, we have to realize how the authors use the word Passover versus how Moses uses it. See, Moses, he's 1,500 years earlier than the authors of the apostolic scriptures. And language changes. Words change in their nuances. Their meanings typically get expanded. So you can't, you can't take what one author meant when he used the word Passover 1,500 years earlier and put that in the mouths of those that are writing much later. No, that word could go through some transformation to where it carries other nuances. And if you don't catch that, you'll misunderstand what's going on in the week of Passover. So let me start with uh, the term Passover. In the first century, in the land, it came to have four four primary definitions. Ready? It could mean the Passover lamb sacrificed in the afternoon of Nisan the 14th. Sometimes when it says Passover, it's not referring to the meal, it's not referring to the week, it's referring to the afternoon of the 14th when they sacrifice the lamb. The lamb itself itself is called Passover, Pesach. Referring not to a day, but the lamb itself that's being slain. It's one of the definitions. The second one is the Passover meal. That's eaten on the evening of Nisan the 15th. You sacrifice the lamb on the 14th. You sacrifice the Passover on the 14th. And then later on that evening, after the sun goes down, you eat it. Well, that meal that you're eating on the 15th, no longer on the 14th, that's called what? Passover. Okay, that's the second definition. The third one is the daily Passover peace offerings. So every day, they had peace offerings that they were commanded to to offer 
and it usually involved bulls, calves, and lambs, and goats. And those offerings that they did every day for seven days of Passover, they ate those in the evenings. They had one big meal every night. I mean, they ate during the day too, but they had extravagant meals uh, in the evenings, and they were eating those peace offerings. You know what the word is for those peace offerings are in the Bible? Pesach. Pesachim. It's plural for Pesach. They're called Passovers. Amazing, huh? So sometimes when you're reading about Passover, you got to say, is that the 14th when they kill the lambs? Or is that the Passover meal that they're eating? Or is that actually one of the other days of the week that they're referring to? Gets complicated. And then finally, sometimes the word Passover refers to the entire week. Not the lamb, not the day, but the entire week. Nisan the 15th through the 21st. That's different than what you find the word Passover meaning in Exodus 12, for instance. Okay, it's far more limited. So once you understand that, then you got to sort through that. You got to say, every time you're reading the apostolic scriptures and you're reading about Passover, you got to say, is that definition number one, two, three, or four? And you'll sort it out. And there's no contradictions. Not between John, not between the synoptics, not the timeline. It all gets sorted out. It's powerful. It's beautiful. I have some booklets on the back to uh, Three Days and Three Nights to help resolve that tension. And then also uh, the preparation day. We talk about the preparation day being preparation to the Passover. It's not. Okay, so get that. You'll love that. Uh, we'll touch on that in a few moments, but we're not going to go into depth because I don't have any time. Okay, so. If it was the week of Passover, we could meet every day and you can listen to me. And then you wouldn't come probably. All right. Timing. Let's talk about timing elements. No, no, before I go there. Another thing. Another thing. By the first century, so, so if you go to Exodus, Passover is Nisan the 14th. Nisan the 15th is called unleavened bread. It goes for seven days. It has a holy day at the beginning and a holy day at the end. It's a week-long celebration called unleavened bread. So if we're looking at Moses and looking at those writings, We'd say, okay, well, when Moses says Passover, he's talking about day 14 and the lambs. Or he may be referring to the meal they eat at night. That's uh, Exodus 12 and verse 8. That same night, they shall eat the lamb. Oh, you got it up. I wasn't going to go there. Take it back down. Thank you. That is a savvy computer worker. Okay. I'm going to get there. Thank you. What you have by the first century is they blend it all together so that the whole week is referred to as Passover or the whole week, including Nisan the 14th, is referred to as unleavened bread. They become interchangeable. Passover and the term unleavened bread are interchangeable. So that's another thing you have to kind of work with when you're working with the gospel writers, and uh, the epistles. Okay, good. Let's go to our first text, Exodus uh, 12, 6 through 8. This deals with timing issues in the original Passover. You shall keep it, the lamb, the Pesach lamb, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. What that's in reference to 
is the killing of the lamb on the 14th is at the close of the day. All the other festivals start on the evening before, not with Passover. Passover is on Nisan on the 14th as it comes into the end of the daylight hours, as it moves to the 15th the next day. So it's the afternoon, probably between 3 and 5, that's one of the twilights, that's when the lamb is to be killed on the 14th. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that same night. Late on the 14th, they slaughter the lamb. That same night, what night's that? Nisan the 15th. Because as you move through sunset, it's now Nisan the 15th. The day begins in the evening and moves to the evening. So late on Nisan the 14th, they slaughter the lamb. Then they eat it that night on Nisan the 15th. In fact, sometimes when you have the phrase Passover feast, we're talking about the feast of Passover in the New Testament. It's referring, referring to the meal that you eat, not, not Passover being slaughtered on the 14th. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Where's the location? In the homes. Later, it's changed. And God instructs them in Jerusalem. Pilgrimage festival, everyone has to come to Jerusalem. It's only in Jerusalem at the temple that the lambs can be slaughtered. So that's the only place you can do Passover once you get to the first century. And, and prior to the first century, but since we're talking about the first century, that's where it would take place, Jerusalem. So let's look at the last Passover of Jesus. Matthew 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, you're a day late if it's unleavened bread. Oh, but it's interchangeable. Unleavened bread and Passover are used interchangeably. So there's no contradiction here. He's talking about Nisan the 14th. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, Nisan the 14th, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat what? The lamb, the word Passover is in reference to the sacrificial lamb. Where do you want us to eat the lamb? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. They prepared the lamb. They went into the city, had a lamb that was actually sacrificed in the temple in order to bring back so they could eat the Passover. Now, on that evening, it says, when evening came, that's Nisan the 15th, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples and they were eating. This is their Passover Seder, Nisan the 14th. Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. Truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Later on that evening, we know what happens. He institutes the long-awaited new covenants. After finishing the Seder, they leave to go out and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is there that Judas shows up with the Romans or, or with the mob and uh, betrays Jesus and Jesus is arrested. Matthew 26, I'll read part of it. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. At that point, they take him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the elders for a sham investigation and trial late that night on Nisan the 15th, replete with false witnesses. And they beat him, they mock him, and they conspire to murder him. Think about that. That was their court proceeding. Yeah, that's kind of the opposite of what we call due process, right? They brutalized him. They had false witnesses. They're framing him because their intent is to murder him. And what's happening outside? Well, the disciples are scattered. Peter's denying him and then weeping bitterly over that. The next morning, early in the morning, after all that drama all night, then they bring him to who? The Roman governor. This is the morning of Nisan the 15th, Matthew 27, 1, through 2, 1 and 2. Now, when morning had come, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him. They led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Pilate, he interrogates him, has him severely scourged, humiliated, ultimately handed over to the executioners for a hideous crucifixion. Mark 15, 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. That would have been 9 a.m. on the morning of Nisan the 15th. Uh, I think Mark uses uh, Jewish time. John uses Roman time. If you look at both of those, it's, it's the same hour that we're talking about. 9 a.m. in the morning, he is now uh, on, on his uh, way to be crucified. He continues to be mocked and ridiculed while hanging on the cross in intense agony. After three hours of excruciating pain from nine to noon, right? Darkness settles in over the land. Huge eclipse. It's dark everywhere. It's like nighttime. And that lasts for another three hours. It says now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land into the hour. You can imagine what's going on. Well, actually, it wouldn't because no one really understood what was going on. Even the disciples, after they see him and he's raised from the dead, they still don't understand that he was going to be raised. They're not connecting the dots yet. But if you could connect the dots, you'd be saying, what are they doing with Jesus? What are they thinking? This is God's son. It's getting dark now. I mean, you know, what you have is you have God in the heavenlies through signs and wonders, you know, pretty, pretty torn in his own heart as to what's happening. And I'll tell you what, it's moving him to action. Matthew 27, 46 through 54. About the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, taking a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let, him, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, in his agony, you know, he, he, in Gethsemane, he's saying, Father, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, talking about the cup of suffering. 
Okay, that cup of justice that would punish sin. You know, in Isaiah 53, it says it pleased God to crush his son. What? It pleased God to crush him? Yeah, no, he was pleased only in that the crushing of Jesus would result in your salvation, right? That was the only thing that had merit in what would take place with his son. God, the judge of the universe, takes all of sin and puts it in his son so that his son in human flesh and blood becomes sin, the totality of sin. He becomes a serpent on the cross and God smashes sin in human flesh on the cross. Jesus represents all of humanity, all of sin. Humanity's sin is in him. This is God punishing sin and eliminating sin in the body of his son in order to satisfy justice and righteousness and also extend mercy and salvation at the same time. This is the genius of the Trinity and their plan to provide for our salvation. Wow. On the cross, you know, when, when I do, I think, I think that Jesus, when he came as a human being, he left a lot of his glory behind. And um, I think part of that was his ability to know all things. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit to lead him in, in his humanity. He didn't have that access. And so here he is on the cross, and he's confused. Jesus is like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, where are you? You've abandoned me in the middle of the plan? What, what has happened? Jesus truly is in excruciating pain, not only physically, not only emotionally, but mentally trying to reconcile what is taking place. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In one final loud death cry, he dies. And at that instant, it says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. And the rocks split. That's a pretty big earthquake. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Yeah, one of the Roman centurions. I mean, he's like, he's like the top dog at the resurrection crucifixion site it says now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening they became very frightened and said this truly was the son of god so in summary jesus dies on the cross at approximately 3 p.m on nisan the 15th and what day of the week is this by the way what day of the week is this that he's crucified on? John 19, 14 states clearly that it was the preparation day of Passover week. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. This is the day that he's crucified, the preparation of the Passover. The word here in the Greek is pareskue, 
It's a technical term among Jews, for Jews, referring to Friday. It's used only in relationship to Friday. It's not used for any other festival. It's only used to communicate it's Friday. Greek-speaking Jews, they'd say day one, day two, day three. Day one is Sunday. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, Periscue, Friday. That's our Friday. We, they'd say Periscue. Actually had a, a word for the sixth day. It was called preparation because that is the day you prepare for the weekly Sabbath. That's why they called Friday, what we call Friday, they called it the day of preparation for the weekly Sabbath. By the way, Passover doesn't need a preparation day. It's late in the afternoon. It doesn't start in the evening. It starts late in the day. You have all day to prepare for it. So anyway, that's a side note. All right. Several solid translations that bear this out. God's Word translation says this. The time was about noon on the Friday of the Passover festival. Another translation, the New English Bible translates it as the Friday of Passover. The Names of God translation translates it as on the Friday of the Passover festival. And the prominent authoritative Greek lexicon of the New Testament, the Bauer Donker Art Gingrich lexicon translates it as the Friday of Passover week. You can put that up if you have it. There it is, the Friday of Passover week. That's the most solid translation that we have of the Greek. It's talking about Friday. John 19, 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, what day, what day is that? Friday, because it was Friday, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Why? It's late on Friday. What's coming shortly? The weekly Sabbath. It's a curse to have any bodies on, on a cross on the weekly Sabbath. So they're worried about this, and they're going to say, hey, we've got to do something about it, right? For that Sabbath was a high day. Asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and they might be taken away. Now that high day Sabbath, is, it's not what we always thought it, it has been. It, it's really a reference to the weekly Shabbat. And any time a holy day falls on the weekly Shabbat, it makes it double holy. So they called it a high Sabbath or a great Sabbath. We'll get to that in a moment. John 19, 31 to 32. Since it was Friday and the next day was an especially important day of rest, a holy day, the Jews didn't want the bodies to stay on the cross. So they asked Pilate to have the men's legs broken and the bodies removed. moves us to the burial of Jesus. They go to break his legs, and they say he's already dead. They lance his side, blood and water come out. Blood and water, isn't that interesting? That's part of the ritual for the leper. Sounds like the lepers are going to be cleansed. Who are the lepers? The living dead. Who are the living dead? We are. Through his blood, his blood mixed with water, we are free. Jesus is dead on the cross, Nice on the 15th, on Friday. It's before the Sabbath, and they got to get his body off the cross. Luke 23, 50 through 54. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was awaiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Luke 23, 54. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Yeah. So the next day is the Sabbath. It's a special holy day. It's a great holy day. It's a high Sabbath because it's Nisan the 16th. And Nisan the 16th is known as the festival of first fruits among the largest sect of Judaism in the first century, the Pharisees, who held many of the seats in the Sanhedrin. So that Sabbath would be a great Sabbath, a high day Sabbath, because it is also first fruits. So, in summary, Thursday, Nisan the 14th, Jesus has a lamb prepared at the temple or his disciples bring it to him. They then have a Seder that same night, Nisan the 16th. The next morning he is framed, tortured, crucified, dead, and buried. It all happens on Friday of the week of Passover, the preparation day to the weekly Shabbat. He remains dead on a great Sabbath due to it falling on Nisan the 16th, first fruits. And then early in, in the morning on Nisan the 17th, which would be Sunday, he rises in power and glory with an immortalized, limitless, physical body. So in conclusion, Passover memorializes forever the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in and for every generation. But the emphasis is on his death, not his rising. The emphasis is Passover, not Easter. Not first fruits. Is first fruits important? Yes. The resurrection? Yes. But that's not the focus. That's not the emphasis. It's to be his death. It's Passover that God is emphasizing and highlighting. It's the death of the Lamb of God that God wants to communicate. Preaching the resurrection of Jesus doesn't save people because the resurrection doesn't atone for your sin. It's the death of the Lamb. His blood poured out. That's the emphasis. That's why I, 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 I want to read this again. Listen to what Paul's saying. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed took bread. This is his last supper, the last Passover meal with his disciples. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he sums it up and says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, go ahead and put that slide up, slide 51. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death, not his resurrection. You proclaim what? Passover, not Easter. The proclamation is about his death. We have forsaken Passover and we made Easter the central issue. And God is saying, no, 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 my son's death is the central issue. That's what's going to save people. You proclaim his death until he comes. The central emphasis in Christianity is the Eucharist, communion. And yet we've changed the meaning of communion, even the Eucharist, to focus on the resurrection. How did we miss 
miss that? How do we mix that up? No, make no doubt about it. The Passover Seder, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that is central to us. But what it's meant to communicate is his death. We need to get back to proclaiming his death. Easter is great, but it's a secondary phenomenon. Let's get back to our Passover Seders. Let's get back to emphasizing his death, the gospel of the shed blood of the Lamb of God, and we will do a much better job bringing Jesus to a dying world. Just a side note, in Leviticus, first fruits, which corresponds to the resurrection of Jesus being the first fruits from the dead, is the only holy day that doesn't have a corporate assembly. All the other holy days also have a corporate convocation. You have to come out for all the festivals. You have to do it corporately. Can't stay in your homes. Got to come out, have a big bash. It's a big party. It's a festival. Oh, except for one, except for one, the one corresponding to the resurrection. Now, I wonder why God would do that. Why he would not give a command for a corporate gathering for that one. I think it's because he knew we were going to do exactly the very thing we shouldn't. Try to emphasize the resurrection when he was saying, no, emphasize my son's death. And we got that backwards. And it's time to change it back. Now, I'm not down on Easter. I love the resurrection. In fact, everyone should have family, a family day on Sunday. Celebrate the resurrection. It's a holy day. It's just not a corporate assembly. Do it with your families. Make it a big deal. That's great. But it'll be secondary to the corporate element of the Passover Seder. And that's how it should be. That's how it should be. The focus is to be on his death, his passion, and his death during this, this season. All right, so. Shabbat shalom.